Well, snakes are a subject that usually get people's attention. My introduction to snakes started around the age of three years old. My parents had just built a new house, and it wasn't completely finished. The basement was, I'm not sure if it was completely finished off in the basement. It seemed to me that part of the floor was still uh, ground floor. And one day, we started going down into the basement, and there was a large snake in the basement. Rather exciting to a three-year-old. My mother didn't share in the adventure quite in the same way, but she took a large shovel and killed that snake, which I was rather impressed by as a three-year-old. Well, I also love kayaking. Um, do a lot of it in the warmer weather, a little bit of it in the colder weather. And as I'm kayaking along, every once in a while, I'll see a snake swimming along in the water. I always keep a close eye on that snake because I don't want it joining me in the kayak. Or when I'm um, floating along underneath the overhanging branches, I sort of keep an eye up on the branches to make sure there isn't a snake up there that's going to drop down in the kayak with me. Because I have a feeling that if a snake would join me in the kayak, I'd probably jump so hard that I wouldn't be in the kayak anymore. I just don't want to share my space with a snake. Well, snakes play an interesting role throughout the Bible. Starting in the Garden of Eden, a snake talks to Eve and convinces her to go against God's instructions, and the consequences are devastating. I think Noah had snakes on the ark. He had two of every living creature and seven of the clean creatures. I don't think I would have. Remember, I don't like to be in the same boat with snakes. Well, then in Moses' life, snakes come into play again in a more major theme. Moses, when he is kind of in this dialogue with God about, well, how will I know that you've really sent me? God says, take your staff and throw it down on the ground, and it turns into a snake. He picks it up, and it turns back into his staff again. And he goes to Pharaoh, and to show Pharaoh that God had sent him he throws down his staff, and his staff turns into a snake, but Pharaoh's magicians are able to do a similar feat. But Moses' snake eats up their snakes. Now, I've always been curious, and I've wondered, when Moses picked up his staff at that point, was it a little bit fatter than it was before? Well, then we come to our passage in Numbers this morning, which is one of the next times that snakes appear in the Bible. But now they're poisonous snakes that appear as a punishment to the people of God for their complaining and their grumbling. Now it's kind of interesting to note, this is not the first time that the people of Israel have complained and grumbled. That's not the last time the people of Israel complain and grumble during their time, their journey through the wilderness. Sometimes it seems that when they complain and grumble, it's just kind of ignored. Sometimes when they complain and grumble, God kind of relentingly gives them what they have been complaining about. Gives them water, or gives them food, or gives them something else. But this time, they're punished. Now, I'm not planning to try and sort out why sometimes they get one response and sometimes they get another response. I'm going to leave that to Ron or Sue to deal with in another sermon some other time. Um, 
Well, Moses, the people were being attacked by the poisonous snakes. They turned to Moses and they repented and they said, please ask God for some way out of this. And Moses prayed and Moses was told, make a snake out of bronze and put it up on a pole. And everybody who is told to look at that snake and the ones that look at the snake live. Did you ever think about how odd that is? You take the thing that is causing and inflicting the pain, causing death, and you're supposed to look at a symbol of it to bring life. Kind of reminds me of, um, I've always gotten poison ivy really bad. And I was told about a solution for poison ivy one time. I was told that if you take and eat poison ivy leaves, it will be a cure. Well, for about 70% or so of the people, it will be a cure. They will never get poison ivy again. For about 20, 25% of the people, um, it won't really have any effect. They'll still get poisoned like they did before. And for about 5 to 10% of the people, it'll kill them. Um, I still get poisoned. <laughs> I never tried it. Um, well, a bronze snake cures the snake bites. It doesn't make sense in a rational way of why that would work. But it does make the point. It makes the point that salvation comes from God. The people asked Moses to pray for them. Moses prayed and was told, make this bronze snake, put it on a pole. He did that. He would have never come up with that idea on his own, I don't think. And it worked. Therefore, it was God at work that brought this salvation. That brings us to the gospel account in John 3. The setting of this passage is Jesus in a discussion with Nicodemus. And sort of toward the end of the discussion, um, Nicodemus, the religious leader, had come to Jesus at night. And we pick up toward the end where Jesus has moved more into a, well, more into a monologue. It's not a Jay Leno type monologue, but it's a monologue where he's going on and on about his response to Nicodemus. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, with the Jewish scriptures. And would have been very familiar with this Numbers passage. And I would think would have readily made the connection that Jesus is referring to that passage. But I wonder what kind of questions went through his mind as he thought about that. What is the connection between the fiery snakes and the bronze snake? How is Jesus connected with the thing that is causing the problems and causing death in the world today? That he is somehow or other the symbol of the solution. How will Jesus be lifted up and what kind of a pole will we put Jesus on to lift him up? How will people know to look at Jesus? 
Well, verse 16 and following in John 3 seem like maybe they are a commentary added by the gospel writer rather than continuation of Jesus' monologue um, because some of the language changes. But nevertheless, John 3.16 is probably the most famous scripture passage in all of scripture. I mean, I've seen at sporting events where people hold up a big plaque, John 3.16. I've seen billboards where all it says is John 3.16. I've never seen a billboard that said John 11.25. That's a good one, too. Maybe you could look that one up sometime. Um, But John 3.16 is an emphasis on love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. And if the message of love does not come through strongly enough in that verse, it's followed up and reiterated in the next verse that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus isn't coming as a judge to say, you're wrong, this is what's wrong with the world, I'm judging you, I'm condemning you. He's come to save it out of love. Well, finally, we come to the Ephesians 2 passage that was read for us. Paul points out that we were all dead in our sins, but now we're made alive with Christ by God's grace. So what's the connecting theme through all these texts? Well, let's join together in a little bit of free association and play with these texts a bit. I think the first point that comes through is snakes can be dangerous. Okay? Now, fiery, poisonous snakes are very dangerous in that they bite you. You will die. Um, I've heard there are poisonous snakes that are called ten-steppers because they will bite you, and by the time you take ten steps, the venom will have gone through you enough that you will die. I've worked in hospitals and worked a lot in the emergency room settings for about a dozen years now. I have never, to my memory, encountered somebody that came into the hospital because of a poisonous snake bite. We've had all kinds of other accidents and all kinds of other injuries. Some that I never thought about how somebody could injure themselves in that way, but um, people are creative. (laughs) Did you know that um, the number one injury involving getting cut has to do with cutting bagels? You hold the bagel in your hand and you slice. (laughs) Or the really brilliant ones put their finger through the hole in the middle of the bagel. But I never heard of somebody coming into the hospital with a snake bite. We find ways to protect ourselves from dangerous snakes. We stay out of the area where the poisonous snakes are. At least I do. I I assume you do as well. Um, When I was hiking in Boulder Field and we heard some people say, hey, up there on the rocks, if you go up there a couple hundred yards, you can see some rattlesnakes sunning themselves. I didn't go a couple hundred yards that direction. Um, And people who are around poisonous snakes or an area where poisonous snakes might be, they go prepared. They wear high leather boots. They do things to protect themselves. So when it's a frontal attack, something that 
you are expecting a danger, you're prepared, you watch out for, and it's not as dangerous. The bigger danger from the snakes are the ones that are the truth-twisting, subtle um, snakes that kind of come in and twist things. In the Garden of Eden, the snake is portrayed as clever, devious, a smooth talker. The snake uses a very effective means of persuasion. It does not directly challenge what Eve believes. No, it twists the truth in a way that just develops a little bit of a doubt in her mind, develops a little bit of a crack, and then takes that crack and exploits that crack and makes that crack bigger. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, he said I could eat of any tree except this one. But the doubt starts there of, is God giving me rules that are ridiculous? Did God really say that you would die if you ate of that tree? God's worried that if you eat that tree, you're going to become like God. And you're going to know good and evil. So God has something that he wants to keep for himself. He's kind of selfish that way. Just twisting a little bit. You know, if the serpent would have come to Eve and said, hey, God doesn't want you to eat this, but I think it'd be good for you. That would have been more of that direct frontal attack, and Eve would have said, no. But the subtle, the coming around, well, how do we face that kind of subtle temptation? Well, I would suspect that none of us are really tempted to, or maybe we're tempted, but we don't give in to the temptation to rob somebody, to take their money, or if we see a purse sitting someplace unattended in the church, during singing, if the person in front of you is standing up singing and their purse is there, you don't reach down in and pull their wallet out and help yourself to the money. I see some of you looking behind you to make sure. Um, but what about when you're filling out your income tax? You just massage those numbers a little bit so that you owe a little bit less tax. It's much more subtle. It's not stealing, is it? What about any of you tempted to skip work someday but tell your boss you really were there? Well, that would be wrong. But is it a different thing to be at work and be on the internet shopping? I saw a figure um, last year about the amount of people that were on the internet shopping around Christmas time and the amount of hours that the average worker, I don't know how in the world they came up with this study, but the amount of hours the average worker spent on the internet shopping for Christmas presents. Now, I don't remember if I read that study when I was on work time or not. Um, <laughs> what are the snakes that could lead you to take your eyes off of God? Addictions. You know, there are addictions that we don't even talk about here in church. We pretend that don't exist amongst us. You know, illegal drugs, alcoholism, sex addictions, 
And then there are acceptable addictions that we joke about. Caffeine, I need my cup of coffee in the morning. Yes, I had my cup of coffee this morning. Um, Food, shopping, work. Maybe there's some addictions in the middle, being addicted to prescription drugs or sleeping pills or, I don't know. But is there really a difference? Is there a difference depending on what we're addicted to? Addictions are a way for covering up pain, to fill an emptiness, to avoid dealing with something. There are 12-step programs for addictions. And I've heard of some places where there are 12-step programs in churches for 12 steps for sinners. How would church be different if during our sharing time, somebody stood up and said, Hi, I'm Keith, I'm a sinner. And everybody else said, Hi, Keith. Would that change our fellowship? Twelve-step programs start with admitting that the addict is powerless over whatever they're addicted to. And then they move to recognizing that a power greater than them can restore them to sanity. And then they make a decision to turn over their lives to that power. Is that a whole lot different than what we read in Ephesians? We were dead in our sins. God has made us alive again through grace. Not anything that we can do, lest we could boast. And yet we forget that we were dead. Well, another snake that might slither into our lives is the desire for security. We live in a time of economic insecurity right now. And what, what would happen if we take our eyes off of God as the one who provides security for us, the one who we can turn to and trust in and put our hope in for the future and start relying on other things, relying on our jobs, relying on our uh, savvy and investments, if somehow or other you're making money in the stock market, Um, or clinging to an unhealthy relationship to somebody else so that you won't be alone, so that you will be secure in a relationship, or hoarding your belongings and trusting your stockpile so that you'll never be in want. Or what about misconceptions of God? Nice little subtle things that may take your focus away from God as God really is. I grew up in the church. I was born on Monday, Labor Day. And the reason why that was important was, since I was born on Monday, I was born in Ephrata Hospital. I think if I was born on Sunday, I probably would have been born in Ephrata United Zion Church, because that's where we always were on Sundays. Um, I think part of it was the um, King James Version language and trying to translate some of that as a young child. But I came up with some really interesting misconceptions. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
has anybody else besides me thought of that as the Lord is the shepherd that I don't want? Okay, I'm strange. Um, and then you continue on, he maketh me lie down. It's not quite the kind, tender shepherd imagery. But I think I was a teenager before I realized that I was kind of twisting that around a little bit different than what it was intended. Thank you, NIV. Um, or the hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. I took as, I don't have one plea, I'm just a poor, miserable pile of whatever. Um, but if you really look at those words, it's not that um, you have no chance whatsoever except maybe God might look down on you and be kind. It's that God is looking down on you with unconditional love and acceptance no matter what. It's, it's coming from the opposite direction. Um, misconceptions about God can come in so easily. There are so many things that influence our image of God. And if we can find ways to straighten out that image, um, it really helps a lot. Because if we do have a misconception of God, the little slithery snakes will find cracks in that to cause doubt and cause um, rifts in our relationship with God. Well, thankfully, we don't just have snakes. We also have solutions. God offers ways out of the danger, often by outlandish means. You know, as I said, a bronze snake put up on a pole and lifted up. Those who looked at the snake lived. Now, I don't know if the pain of the snake bite went away instantly when they looked at the snake, or if they still had to deal with some of the consequences of what was going on beforehand. The text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that they lived. The most severe consequences were taken away. How could a bronze snake on a pole save them? It couldn't. It was God that saved them, and he simply used that as a means by which to do it. But Jesus, nailed up on a cross, can save us. How can Jesus dying on a cross save us? I admit I don't know. I don't understand all the inside details of how that works. I have a number of books on my shelves that I read in seminary that tell me exactly how that works. Um, they don't all agree. Um, you know, propitiation, uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, death that's needed to satisfy the law, etc., etc. I don't understand. But I do know that it works. And that's the important part. God uses ways to accomplish his purpose that don't make sense. And rather than focusing on the means, focus on God and God's love that's working through those means. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Jesus said, I will draw all men, all people, unto me. 
Sometimes, or something in Jesus' death is attractive. Something in him being lifted up draws people to, toward him. I think it's the peace of love. It's not that we're drawn toward him just to get away from the snakes. It's that we're drawn toward him for something better. Well, even with these solutions, another danger appears. And that danger is that we end up, we can end up focusing on the means of salvation rather than focusing on God behind the salvation. If you remember that bronze serpent on the pole, well, that artifact stayed around for a long period of time. And it's not in a museum today. And the reason for that is King Hezekiah, when he was um, going through a time of spiritual renewal with the people of Israel, he found that that was set up in a temple and people were worshiping that pole and that bronze snake. And he destroyed it because people were worshiping the symbol, the means, rather than worshiping the God who had it made. And that bronze snake became like the golden calf, something to worship rather than to worship the God who was behind it. We don't worship crosses as the means of salvation, do we? What other means of God's work in our lives might, might we be tempted to worship? Well, my, here's where my mind sort of went into free association a bit. Um, when you think about a bronze snake on a pole, I started thinking about the symbol for medicine. Now, it doesn't come from that. It comes from Greek mythology. But sometimes we can be tempted to trust in medicine rather than trusting in God, who uses medicine to work um, at bringing healing to us. The medicine itself can't save us, but God uses that as a means. The jobs that we have, the skills that we have, those are things God has given to us to use and to, um, as a way that we can find fulfillment in life, as a way that we can find um, ways to earn a living and to have money and have food and have things to provide for ourselves and our families and for others who are in need. But if we start trusting in those rather than trusting in the God who gave them to us, we're missing the point. What if we start trusting in the Christian character that we've developed? If we worship that, it leads to spiritual pride. And we start thinking that, well, anybody who's less than me is just that way because they don't try hard enough. Rather than recognizing that we are the way we are because of God's spirit working through us. Well, I've tried to snake my way through these various texts and find some themes that apply to our lives today. Watch out for the snakes. They can be sneaky and slither the way into our lives if we're not careful. But thanks be to God who provides solutions for these slippery issues, albeit often in unusual ways. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.